this episode of Full Stack Radio, I talked to Joel Claremont about the Elm language and getting started with functional programming. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 44. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio Podcast, where I talk to people in the software industry about everything from user experience and product design to unit testing and system administration. I'm your host, Adam Wathen, and today I'm here with Joel Claremont. How's it going, Joel? It is going all right. How are you doing? Pretty good. Uh, So, for anyone who's uh, not familiar with you, do you mind just kind of introducing yourself and letting people know kind of like where you came from and what you're up to and kind of what keeps you busy? Sure, sure. I, uh, I live in Wisconsin. Milwaukee area, and I organize the Milwaukee PHP user group, as well as the Milwaukee Functional Programming user group. Um, Yeah, I guess uh, PHP, obviously, since it's in the name of that one user group, is something I'm involved with, but also uh, .NET, I do a lot of work with that, and uh, newer languages like uh, Elm and Elixir, I'm I'm moving towards, but those are those are my my babies right now. I'm having a lot of fun with them. Awesome, yeah. Um, I've been getting uh, more and more interested in functional programming stuff in general. I started picking up Elixir, and that's kind of the first real proper functional programming language that I've been playing with. Um, but it's interesting that you're kind of like still a PHP guy who also runs like a functional programming <laughs> meetup. So. Yeah. I mean, how do you kind of reconcile that? Do you do a lot of like functional style programming in your PHP? Do you keep that stuff kind of separate? Uh, you know, do you look at them as like separate things? Do you kind of try and blend them? I don't know. Just what are kind of your thoughts on that whole kind of arrangement there? Yeah, there's there's definitely um, techniques and and just styles of programming that I think influence any language I write in. I don't I don't go to the um, the effort of trying to do a super functional style in PHP, um, mainly just because it doesn't it doesn't fit real good, and and a lot of the things I actually enjoy about functional programming just don't apply at all to PHP. You know, so for example, you know, immutability. Um, you can do it. I mean, you can pull in libraries like Hack has some nice libraries you can pull in for immutability, but. But uh, yeah, I, I definitely see an influence there. Um, some of it's just, you know, like why would I learn something? Some of it's just to have fun. <laughs> Yet I still do PHP and I enjoy it and it pays the bills and C Sharp, same thing. It's not the most glamorous language, but man, there's a lot of work out there. So I, I'm, I'm still finding a use for it in my toolkit. Right on. How did you kind of get into functional programming? Well, that's a good question. I guess um, I've always been curious about languages in general. And... So like the first language I learned when my parents got me a computer as a kid was uh, Atari Basic, um, and then you know I was like, oh, there's another language on here. There's uh, there's Assembler. It's like, what's that about? So just kind of like lifelong, I've had this interest in learning things, and uh, I guess it was around maybe 10 years ago, um, somebody had introduced me to other languages that like I had never even heard of these languages. Um, and it just it kind of blew my mind, and so I looked at it, and it's like, whoa, that's too hard. I don't, I don't, I don't <laughs> know what I'd use that for, or what it's good for. Um, but it, it kind of the curiosity never left me. You know, I really think I would attribute it to some of these uh, MOOCs, the the massively online classes that are popping up all over the place. And there was one that was on, a, it was on a few different languages, but one of them was ML, and. I just, it was the first time it sort of clicked for me, 
and I didn't feel like I was totally struggling. And I realized, hey, this is this is actually something that has benefit. It's not just a curiosity. And so ever since then, um, I've paid more attention to functional languages and to the point now where I'm actively trying to bring them into production projects that I'm working on. Right on. Yeah, functional programming... Um I didn't even really like know what it was or knew it existed until like a few years ago. And I feel like I remember, you know, telling people that, you know, language isn't really important and, you know, it's all just syntax. And as long as you understand like how to solve problems, you can apply it in any different language until I started to look at functional programming languages. And then you realize that it's like a total paradigm shift in thinking about how you're going to solve problems a lot of the time. So for me, it's just been like a fun journey and trying to like, retrain my brain to think about how to solve problems in different ways. And it almost feels like a totally different activity than like what I'm doing when I'm doing my regular day-to-day programming. I really feel like I'm like flexing different muscles. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, um, I had that same experience where, I mean, just one of the more common hurdles I think people face when they come to a, a certain class of functional languages is, oh, there's like, there's no loops. I have to use recursion. Okay, yeah. what's that all about? And it's like, how do how do I? This would be so simple to do in PHP, but I don't even know how to do it in Haskell or whatever. And so, um, but once once you get used to that style, it uh, you're right, it does sort of activate a different part of the brain, and you you think about problems in a different way. You slice them up differently. Yeah, I definitely found like since uh, so I I started working with Elixir just doing kind of the exorcism.io stuff. I've never, I've still never yeah. tried to build anything real with it. I'm just kind of using it for like, throw me some problems and let me try and figure out how to solve them with this language. You know what I mean? And it's been fun yep. in that way. But uh, after kind of getting more comfortable with like uh, recursion, I feel like I'm using it more and more in PHP now even because I'm starting to find places where once you kind of like get your head around it and it feels like a simple concept, a lot of problems feel like much better suited to be solved that way than... Mm-hmm than with a loop. And that's been really fun for me is finding like kind of different things to take away than I can apply in my day to day that maybe used to seem complicated, but are starting to feel more natural. Yeah, Uh, I'm still kind of just at kind of the tip of the iceberg with that stuff, though. So I'd be interested in kind of hearing from you, like what kind of your some of some of your favorite takeaways kind of have been from that style of programming or anything that just like is really exciting to you about it that maybe you'd want to talk more about? Yeah, I, I would. I would probably focus on uh, a somewhat new language. It's maybe a few years old now, called Elm. And I even have uh, snuck Elm talks into PHP conferences. Uh, last year at True North, I gave a talk on Elm because you know, there's PHP conferences have talks on JavaScript and front end stuff, and that's that's what this is. But um, I, I typically have shied away from the front end, and you know, some of it was just like lack of time to to learn everything, and some of it was just like I, I understood the back end better, and I thought the front end was this mystical place where you had to like know about different browser versions and all this weird stuff. And so last uh, last summer, I was at a conference in Chicago called Lambda Jam. It's uh, one of the sister conferences of uh, Strange Loop. And I, I just sat in this talk. It was about Elm. I had no knowledge of what it was before I went in there. It's like, yeah, let's just see what this is about. And it perfectly fit uh, a problem we were having at work. So we have um, a Silverlight application. <laughs> those uh, those are going out of style really fast. In fact, Microsoft is really not even supporting it. Like, you cannot run Silverlight in Chrome, for example. Just, <laughs> there's, there's all these issues. So, like, we have a ticking clock of 
we got to rewrite this. And so the last year or two I've had in the back of my mind, well, what would I rewrite this with? And like I just assumed, well, it's going to be JavaScript and HTML, but like what, what framework would I use or like is there any libraries that would help me? So this talk on Elm was all about 2D graphics. And I'm like, oh, this is perfect. This is like exactly what I need. And the thing that really appealed to me about it was that um, you know you don't need a plugin because it compiles to JavaScript, and the the experience of the language, it's sort of um, I I see a lot of stuff on the Elm mailing list where Elm is like a programming language with a framework baked in, in that there's really an architectural style built into the language. Um, so you, it leads you down a certain path, which just takes a lot of decisions off your plate and makes things easy. And as a result, there's um, really good support for um, certain patterns. Um, things are faster, and the tooling is nice. But so Elm just has been an incredible experience. And then later, I realized, oh, you know, it's, this isn't just about 2D graphics. Like you can write Elm apps that just target HTML. And so we've been working with it. Um, for for just like normal line of business web apps that you would crank out in Ember, or Angular, or whatever, we've been doing stuff with uh, with Elm, and it's been it's been a really fun experience. And the uh, frustration level has gone way down with uh, our developers, just as far as like regressions and bugs and um, keeping the code clean and organized. Um, and like how do you how do you jump into a project and know where things are? That that sort of stuff has really been solved for us by, by Elm. So have you looked at Elm at all, or should I, should yeah, I talk yeah. a little bit about Yeah, yeah. I've looked language? at it a little bit, but I have a lot of questions about it from kind of okay. an outsider's point of view. So yeah. um, for, I've never actually used it. All I've really done is kind of like perused the, uh, the landing page a couple times. Mm -hmm. But the thing that's always never been clear to me is like, is it just a language that compiles to JavaScript and you're meant to use like existing JavaScript libraries with it and stuff? Or is it more kind of like, built specifically for the browser in the sense that it, you know, can target HTML and the DOM directly and you don't have mm -hmm. to reach into like, you know, call out to browser APIs or is it meant to like even replace a framework like Angular or, or Ember? You know what I mean? Like, is it just yeah. a language? Like, would you use it on the server in Node if you wanted to? Or is it really best suited specifically for use in the browser? I'm just trying to figure out like where it sits on that spectrum between like being a language and being like something that you use to build things for the browser. Right. You know what I mean? I would say right now it really is targeted at the browser. Um, there is an Elm node um project that somebody's running and so you can run elm code server side um but I, i've not really dabbled with that and it's not like the core language builder his name's evan he's he's not pursuing that right now that i've seen um so as far as like it's it's role in the browser and where does it sit relative to javascript it, it does compile to javascript which is is one of its strengths, I think, that you don't you don't need something special in the browser to run it, and you can use it entirely as like the only language of your front end project. So um, it you know it renders the HTML. Um, there's even a really cool Elm CSS library that you can get like compile time type safety of the CSS spec and like do all kinds of really interesting things um, that I've I've not seen done in other languages. But the reality is it, it is a pretty new language and the ecosystem is, is still in its infancy. So more likely than not in a real world application, you're gonna wanna pull in 
JavaScript libraries, usually around like UI. You know, if you want a really nice calendar widget or slider or, or something more complex like that that you don't want to build from scratch in Elm, you can pull in you know a jQuery UI or, or anything anything you want. Uh, and that's that's one of the strengths I think of Elm too is there's a lot of thought and care given to how that JavaScript interop happens and how it it happens in a way it's sort of the model of working with with a remote server over an API. So you have these things called ports and, and you define the type of data that'll pass back and forth. And the reason that's nice is first of all it's very explicit where you're hooking into the outside world, but it doesn't sacrifice any of the the type safety or the compile time checks, the things that you know maybe would have driven you to use Elm in the first place. Uh, I've seen other compiled to JS languages where it's like, yeah, you, you can interact with JS, but then you lose a lot of the power of why you're using that non-JS language in the first place. So Elm handles that pretty nicely. Yeah, it seems like a, an interesting language. I mean, so I guess one question I would have is, where do you think the best place is for someone to start if they want to learn you know, Elm and kind mm -hmm. of figure out how you're supposed to use it and, w and what it looks like to build an application with it. The the um, the best place, I think, is there's a, a guide that's linked to from the, the main site. I think it might just be guide.elmlang.org. And um, a lot of care went into it. There's a, a pretty big release of Elm that came out just within the last month or two. And so that guide was completely rewritten. And... Um, at the functional programming user group, the last meetup we had, we actually just did kind of a group coding session. And the, the nice thing I like about the guide is that it's not just code and prose that you're reading. There's exercises. So, you know, they'll introduce a concept and give you some sample code. And then at the end, it's like, well, hey, you know, could you change it to do this? Could you add this function? Um, you know, we rendered this as HTML. Could you render it as SVG? You know, there's, there's all these little exercises that sort of make what you just read about a little, little more permanent in your brain. So that's, that's definitely where I'd start. Um, beyond that, I know there's an Elm book being written right now by uh, a guy named Richard Feldman. I'm hoping to get <laughs> my hands on an early copy of that soon. And I know in September there is a, like a hands-on two- or three-day workshop out in Minneapolis that I'm going to uh, attend that uh, Front End Masters is hosting. But there's ElmConf uh, as, uh, as part of Strange Loop. I think it's the day before Strange Loop in St. Louis coming up in September. So there's, there's uh, definitely a building community around it. And um, I've noticed that a lot of JavaScript conferences usually have at least one or two talks on Elm now. So it's starting to, to get a little more mainstream awareness. Um, and I've certainly seen a lot of interplay between the uh, Elixir and Elm communities with the same sort of thing, like ElixirConf has had Elm talks. And I think, um, I think even the, Evan, the, the guy who invented Elm, uh, gave one of the keynotes at ElixirConf last year. So there's, there's definitely some, some cool interactions between those, those communities as well. Cool. Yeah, how big is the Elm community, would you say, these days, as maybe compared to something like the Elixir community? Hmm. Um, I don't know how I'd gauge that. I mean, I, I I lurk on the mailing lists, and there's there's an Elm Slack that I hang out, and it's pretty active. You know, I I would say, I mean, another measure is just like meetups. So like Chicago has an Elm meetup, and St. Louis has one. I've I've seen them popping up. I would, if I had to guess, I'd say Elm is probably smaller than Elixir, but I don't I don't really have any hard numbers to <laughs> to cool. gauge that.
Just wanted to take a quick break to thank our first sponsor of the episode, and that is Laracasts. So Laracasts is a de facto community and educational resource for PHP developers of all skill levels, covering all sorts of topics in the web application development space from Uh, Getting started with frameworks like Laravel to building complex user interfaces with JavaScript frameworks like Vue.js and React. I think there's over 700 videos on there right now, which is over 120 hours of content. And Laracast actually has a special offer for Full Stack Radio listeners, where if you sign up with the coupon code FULLSTACK2016, all one word, all caps, you actually get 50% off of your first month. So you can get access to 120 hours of content for under five bucks, which is pretty awesome. And I think uh, once you check it out, you'll be hooked. It's probably the best $9 a month that I spend. I always find new stuff there to learn, and it's kind of my go-to resource for any new topic that I'm trying to learn. I'm always hoping that Jeffrey has done a video on something because he does such a great job teaching this material. So if you haven't checked it out, definitely check out Laracast.com and use the special Full Stack 2016 coupon code to give it a try and get your first month for 50% off. Thanks, Laracast, for sponsoring the show. So what is what are kind of the things that make you excited to use Elm in the browser versus just using JavaScript? Yeah, um, so I... I, I just to put this out there, I don't have like a dogmatic view of programming languages. Like I I don't have a side on the whole dynamic versus static and all. I mean it, it's it's kind of weird to say that, but I I love I love all programming languages, Adam. So it's, it's really hard <laughs> for me to pick my favorite. But I do like. I mean the thing I like about Elm is the fact that it is statically compiled. That you have um, strong types. I guess one of the things that's different about Elm, or, or new at least to me, is they put a lot of energy into making it beginner-friendly. And so you see that in a number of different aspects. Uh, part of it is the documentation. Um, part of it, though, is the compiler and the error messages you get. I don't know if you've seen, um, <laughs> I'll, I'll sometimes retweet these uh, error messages that people will post. Like They're just amazed, like, this, this actually made sense to me. Yeah, that's yeah. one of the things that I think actually I see most come out of uh, like when I see Elm related stuff on Twitter and stuff. It's always people talking about like I can't believe how good the <laughs> error messages are. It's it, yeah. it seems to always know like what I should have done, and you know we'll spit out a whole table explaining you know something. Um, it seems to like really have a lot of the ability to kind of really figure out the context around like what you're doing Mm. and understand like what mistake you're making and how you can do it better. It's kind of, it's pretty amazing really. Yeah. So, I mean the, those errors I see run the spectrum from, you know, a lot of people maybe coming from JavaScript will try to do something like um, use a non-Boolean as part of an if expression and it'll say, Hey, you know, we don't really have the concept of like truthy and falsy, like you might be used to in JavaScript here's what you should do, and here's a link to the documentation that talks more about it. Whereas, you know, some languages might just say, listen, that's like super basic. If you can't figure that out on your own, you're on your, you know, you, you, you shouldn't be using this language. And sure. so they've, they've taken a different angle and said, no, we, we want to we make it as easy as possible to start using this. And um, one, one post I saw on the mailing list, this was maybe a year ago, when I first started looking at Elm, was somebody said, hey, if you ever get a compiler error that you don't understand, can you open that as like an issue on our bug tracker? Like they, they're that committed to making it work. 
um, for for newbies especially because you know that's a lot of work as a language designer to think of all the possible scenarios and like what might this person's understanding be and like how much do we have to help them and so the fact that that's a priority within the the language design I think is really neat. It's cool. I'm looking at um a little bit of uh, code samples and stuff here in the guide that you pointed out. And I guess it kind of brings me back to the question I had before about like where it, I, how opinionated it is, I guess, like about yes. how you're building stuff. It looks like in yep. the example I'm looking at, you're even defining like um, HTML and stuff in JavaScript that I'm guessing would kind of get rendered to the DOM in a way that, I mean, naively to me feels almost like how you would do something with React. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is an interesting side point, but Elm actually predates React, <laughs> and React took a lot of inspiration from Elm um, and other libraries like Redux. So, um, yeah, a lot of people make that comparison, and I, I've even noticed there's a lot of developers have sort of transitioned from, hey, we were doing vanilla JavaScript, and then we started doing Angular, or then we started doing React, and then we started doing Elm, and so it was a sort of natural progression. I... Personally, I guess I'm skipping right over React. I've never, <laughs> sure. never done anything with it. But, but yeah, there's a lot of similarities as far as uh, it uses the virtual DOM and it does some really accelerated things to make that fast. It has um, one-way data flow so that you know when a, when a click happens, it triggers a change in your model, which essentially updates the whole page. Um, so you don't have to maintain all of these intertangled possible state transitions. It's just like... Given this model of the world, this is the view that will be produced. And all I have to do is handle events that update that model, and the rest, the rest is done for me. So there's these discrete, you have a model, you have an update, you have a view, and there's one way that your, your application flows between those. Yeah, it's it's kind of it definitely sounds like it's more opinionated than um, maybe you would think of other languages that you know you think of as compiled to JavaScript languages. So when yeah. I first heard of Elm, I kind of instinctively put it in the sort of in the same bucket as like a coffee script or something, right? Um, or a TypeScript or something like that. But it sounds to me like it's actually uh, a much bigger idea than those in the sense that you're not just like trying to write some language that eventually turns into JavaScript and, you know, you still use all the same stuff that JavaScript would expose to you. It's almost like an entirely different way to, of interacting with a DOM that happens to be implemented with JavaScript, but it's not something you ever even have to think about. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and there's no, um, I, I mean, the, the, the community accepts that, yes, this is extremely opinionated. There's this thing called the Elm architecture. And there's a lot of, a lot of questions I see on the mailing list to like, people wanting to do something differently. And, you know, they'll kick ideas around like, hey, you could maybe try this or do that. But at the end of the day, there's definitely some approaches that people want to take that just don't fit with the architecture. And, and that's why I'm not, it's definitely not a one-size-fits-all thing. If, if you have very specific needs that the Elm architecture or language or ecosystem doesn't address, then, you know, definitely don't use it. There's, there's other solutions that might work better for you. But for myself... Um, I like that opinion, the strong opinion, and I like the fact that it, it guides you in a certain way of structuring applications so that it's very easy to, to understand what's happening and where. And even as it starts to grow across a bunch of different files and modules and it gets bigger and bigger, that Elm architecture scales really nicely. 
and you, it doesn't break down when you reach a certain size. It, it holds together pretty well. Does Elm have an opinion about whether you should be building like single page applications versus just creating components that you're sprinkling into otherwise like server rendered pages? Um, everything I've done. Well, okay, so I would say no, um, with a caveat. So one one of the other things that Elm makes possible is that it's not uh, it's not an all or nothing approach. So I have some legacy apps that I just I'm not in a position. There's no business reason to throw it out and rewrite the front end in Elm. But there are problem areas, or there are there are new features we want to build, and I can build just the you know just a widget in the sidebar on this page in Elm, and have the rest of the thing rendered by PHP or .NET or you know have JavaScript. So it it doesn't have to take over. It doesn't have to be the whole front end. It can fit really nicely in the div if that's where you want it to be. Cool. Um, but as far as that, I think most people, especially if you're writing a greenfield app, it's going to be a single page app. And I, I, the only apps I've built talk over an API to a server. So the server is really having no direct rendering responsibilities. It's just providing data to the application. Got it. Okay, that's good to know. What is kind of the development experience like? Um, in terms of working locally versus bundling stuff up for uh, production? Is there any like tooling that you think uh, is kind of the best way to go or has the community kind of landed on one way to do it? Or I don't know, what's kind of your workflow like when working with Elm? Yeah, so this is an area where a little bit of my my weakness on the front end shows in that we don't have really complicated like build processes and things. Um, So the, the biggest Elm app we have right now, we actually hired um, a, a consultant, somebody that has worked with Elm and launched numerous production apps. And so he helped me get this one project spec'd out. And um, we're, we're literally using make files and things to, to, to build it and to compile it and to stick it into our other app. And it works really well. I mean, it's like push button deploy. But there's, I know there's like, you know, Webpack um, helpers for Elm. And since Elm installs via node locally, you know, you still have access to a lot of JavaScript tooling um, for packaging it up and versioning and, and things like that. Um, but I, I don't have a lot to say about that topic because it's kind of one of my, my weaker areas for the, the front end. I guess like I, I'd love to know more about your uh, experience with Elixir and like how long you've been playing with that and what sort of things you've used it on. Yeah. So Elixir, I would say I have less experience than Elm. It's it's something that I've had a strong interest in for a while. And uh, even before that, I, I had a strong interest in Erlang. And I, I've spent a lot of time learning that and playing around with it and going to conferences and just kind of hanging out in the community. But I guess more recently, I've gotten more serious about uh, Elixir and trying to trying to actually use it for some apps. So I don't have anything in production yet uh, with Elixir, but I have uh, one app in development right now that likely will be my first one that goes to production. So it's, it's a proof of concept app, but likely we'll move forward with it and, and, and keep building it out. But I, I really like, I, I guess there's a lot in Elixir that appeals to me in the same way the Elm ethos appealed to me, that it, it seems to be trying to take things that are powerful and useful, but maybe a little hard to approach, like Erlang, yeah. and 
make, make it easier and more approachable um, for other developers that maybe are coming from Rails or are coming from other um, backgrounds that, like, they look at Erlang syntax and it's just like, I don't even know what to do with this. So there's there's a lot, and the friendliness of the community um, is, is the same sort of thing that appeals to me that, that Elm did. Cool, yeah. I guess um, something I've always kind of wondered about Elixir, since it's the only functional programming language I've ever really spent any real time with, how does it compare in your experience to other functional programming languages? Like, to me, it feels like, you know, the syntax is like very Ruby inspired, of course. Um, and it seems like they're trying to make it very approachable for people coming from that sort of place. But is it a good gateway to like something like a Haskell or are you going to be still totally kind of like lost when you see how more traditional functional programming languages look? Yeah, I, I guess um, having played with a lot of different languages, there's there's definitely a spectrum. And there, there's even, you know, debate as to what, what makes a functional language. Um, you know, some would argue JavaScript is a functional language, and there's some that would, would say, no, definitely not. But, you know, as far as the spectrum goes, um, I, I would say Elixir and Erlang both are very, very strong in that, that uh, regard. There's things that Elixir does that I know will annoy Erlang people. Like, for example, you can rebind variables. Uh -huh. and like, technically, it's, you know, it's an immutable language, but they, it's a convenience um, to do things under the hood. Yes, everything's immutable, but to the developer, they can use a syntax that looks like your mutating state within a very spe specific scope. Um, so I, I think it takes a nice... Um, pragmatic stance of you know not insisting on things a certain way to try, try to make it approachable but also not really not sacrificing anything of value in the process so but as far as like if you learn elixir um you know i i think haskell and to a certain degree elm are pretty different languages from elixir just in how they handle typing um and, and some of those other things too that it, you might have another hump or two on the learning curve, but you'd probably be further along if you had learned Elixir first. Uh, you you mentioned that um, everyone seems to have kind of a different definition of what they consider a functional language to be. I, that's something that I've always struggled with, honestly, and knowing like, well, what is functional programming really? Like what actually yeah. makes you know a language a functional programming language? I'd mm -hmm. love to know kind of like what your opinion is on that and kind of where you draw the line. So I... I'm going to plagiarize the, uh, this, this really awesome series of blog posts. Um, the guy's name is Chris Jenkins. He's, he's in England, and he's actually the, the guy that we hired to consult with us on our own project. Okay. So I've been learning just a ton from him. But he, I don't know, a few months back on his blog, I think it was a two-part series just entitled What is Functional Programming? And he really dodged a lot of the things that trip people up or, or cause debates <laughs> and focused on the essence of it. And, and really the essence that he focused on, and I, I agree wholeheartedly, is that it's, it's the lack of side effects, or as he coined another term, side causes. So basically, you know, he shows a function, I think he used Java as an example. He showed that this, this function may take no parameters at all, but it affects the outside world because inside it's writing to a database or it's doing something else. Uh -huh. And and likewise, um, you know, you can have the same problem where um, you have hidden inputs. There's no input passed into this function, but it's it's calling the current date or it's doing something else that really 
is either environmental or, or something else that's feeding data into this function. It's that, that lack of transparency and that lack of ability to look, to just look at a function, even a function signature, and know what it does is, is really the essence of functional programming is that you, with the constraints that uh, you get from a, a functional programming language, you can guarantee that there, you'll know what this function does. It won't secretly do something else because it all it does is it takes inputs and returns an output. So it just it makes things much, much simpler uh, to understand and it prevents a lot of bugs. So I, I like that approach and that, that explanation of it. So uh, I highly recommend those posts. So how do you like, I guess the thing that's tricky for me to figure out there is like sometimes you have to do things that do have side effects. For example, like mm -hmm. even if you're building a web application with a functional programming language, you still need to like write stuff to the database, right? So how do you like yeah. do that in a way that still satisfies that kind of, you know, guiding ethos of is this oh, functional? Sure. sure. So so like uh, let's let's take Elm as an example. Um, Elm you want to call an external API. So that's that's clearly a side effect, right? You're you're doing something somewhere else and it maybe is going to happen asynchronously or it might like fail and there's all these different things that could happen. So the way that Elm and Haskell and a lot of other um, languages handle that is with types. So the return type will be something like a task or a maybe or something like that. And so looking at the type, you know, oh, hey, this thing that's getting returned to me is going to do work. And then it's it's really up to the language or the runtime to execute the work and manage the work and report back when the work is done, but it's not hidden anymore. So the the function signature that return type, the fact that it's returning a task or or or, or a chain of tasks, is the the clear signal that your function is returning this thing. It's not doing the thing, and so like unit testing and all that can be done. Because you don't have to mock a database, you just test like did the task I get back look like what I expect I want it to do, and it simplifies a whole lot of different things like testing um, and just like understanding how the data flows through the application. Just wanted to take another quick break to thank our second sponsor of the show, Rollbar. So one of the frustrating things about being a developer is dealing with errors, of course, right? You know, either you rely on your users to report errors or you're digging through log files trying to figure out what went wrong or maybe you're hooked up to an existing tool and you got millions of alerts flooding your inbox all day long. Uh, Rollbar is like a full stack error monitoring solution and with Rollbar you get the context, insights, and control that you need to find and fix bugs faster with a lot less noise. So Rollbar is really easy to install. You can start tracking production errors and deployments in eight minutes or less. It works with all major languages and frameworks including Ruby, Python, JavaScript, PHP, Node, iOS, you know, you get the picture. If you're a Laravel developer, like myself, there's actually a package that you can use that integrates with Rollbar really quickly. So Rollbar also integrates with a lot of different other tools, like it can send your errors to Slack or HipChat or create new issues in GitHub, Jira, and stuff like that. And uh, for full stack radio listeners, Rollbar actually has a special offer where if you sign up at rollbar.com slash full stack radio, you get access to their bootstrap plan for free for 90 days. So you get like 300,000 errors tracked for free. So give Rollbar a try. Head over to rollbar.com slash full stack radio to try out the bootstrap plan. And thanks to Rollbar for sponsoring the show. 
What are some common, like, I guess, functional programming language features that uh, you find interesting? Like, I guess, like, some things don't necessarily make a language functional, but it seems like things like, for example, pattern matching are a lot more common in functional programming languages than they are in other programming languages. Yeah, so um, I'll go back to Elm as an example. Elm has union types and and, um, algebraic data types, which which really is just a fancy way of saying you can construct types on the fly that mean something, that that give a shape to your data, and aren't just like this is an integer or this is a Boolean or whatever. Um, But so like that idea of having a data type that this is a HTTP result is my data type. It could be I get back JSON. It could be I get back an error of this type. It could be I get back an error of this other type. There's there's all these different things that are sort of baked in to that type, and that allows you to do something like like pattern matching and have really a lot of business logic s- simply in your data types. Um, I find that I find that pretty interesting. It's it's a concept that I'm still I'm still learning and uh, trying to trying to use in a in a meaningful way because like with my background and I think most most developers coming from a normal you know OO background we think of types as well it just describes what kind of data it is we don't think of it as really defining the logic and the shape and and the interactions possible yeah. with this data yeah I mean like with something like Elixir right like you know you think of um like type hinting in PHP, for example, and you can specify, well, uh, you know, this should receive this and this. And people have talked about adding, you know, wanting to be able to add like method overloading to mm-hmm. PHP because of the fact that we have type hints now. Well, I'd like to define a version of this function that works when it takes an array versus one that when it takes this type of object or, yep. or whatever, right? Um, but once you start getting, once you start learning about like pattern matching in a language like Elixir, you, you realize like how, uh, how crippled even that system would be compared to right. like true pattern matching where it's like, you know, here's the definition for um, this function when the integer passed in is positive or when it's uh, divisible by two or yep. when the yeah. array that's passed in is empty or when the array has exactly three elements and like all these things can be kind of declared directly in a function signature. Mm-hmm. You're right. It removes like all these different checks about like, the shape of of your data and just kind of lets you do it in this declarative way um and then combining that with things like recursion and stuff you land on all these really cool ways of, of solving a lot of problems like there's a really i'm sure it's probably the same in every functional programming language but i find like the fizzbuzz solution in like elixir is like really <laughs> elegant for example right yeah so i'll have to, yeah. I'll have to link that up in the show notes but yeah it, i'm it, it's interesting that uh, a language like languages like elm and stuff support that as well so just just one quick comment on, on pattern matching. Yeah. That I, I like to, when I'm showing somebody, like maybe I'm giving a talk on functional programming, I'll put a slide in that, because some people will say like, well, aren't you like talking about like an enum? I mean, isn't that basically the same thing? It's like, no, 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 no. Um, so take, a, take an example of, um, you know, you have a data type that represents uh, a playing card, you know, a king of spades or... Uh, a two of clubs or whatever, and then you so you say you, it can be a card with this value and the suit, and then you have a function that no, that does something with that, and so you build like you might build a pattern match for, to handle all these different things, but a lot of languages that have pattern matching will also 
check that you've satisfied all the possible branches for that pattern match. And so a lot of times, okay, somebody comes in, they, they add something to the, data, the possible data type, but they forget to go to all the places that handle that data type. And so there's a case that's silently not handled or defaults in a way that you weren't expecting. I love like languages like Elm and Elixir that tell you, hey, you, you, got, you missed the case here. You got to go fix that. It's, it's things like that that really aid me as a developer and make my, my job a lot easier. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's it's a really different way of um of thinking about programming and you start to see features that like you wish you could have in uh, <laughs> other languages. Is there anything else yeah. um like feature-wise I guess that uh, you find really interesting in in functional languages that you think uh, people could, you know, check out and and learn from? Yeah, I guess I guess another kind of core feature that I see in a lot of languages is is just immutability. And it, that's another one that's really mind-bending. Like, how, how can I do any meaningful work if I can't, like, change values and variables? Like, how does that even work? Um, but once, once you figure out, like, the different ways of working with immutable data, that's something else that just eliminates a lot of bugs or a lot of really squirrely things where data is changing out from under you. Um, and so that's, that's something else I really like about um, Elm is that you literally cannot mutate data. Like there's there's some functional languages I use, like F Sharp, for example. They give you a safety valve. They're like, okay, if you really want to do it, use this keyword when you're binding the variable, and then you can mutate it later if you want. Like in Elm, you you can't, and in Haskell, you can't. And so those constraints, they 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 hurt a little bit as you're learning it, but once you get it, it's like, wow, this really takes away a whole class of problems that I don't even have to think about anymore. Are there any specific um, challenges you can think of uh, when everything is immutable that might be hard for people to figure out how to wrap their head around? Like one thing that sticks out to me is like if you want to represent a data structure like a stack or something Mm -hmm. where like popping something off the stack returns the item that was popped off the stack but also inherently is meant to mutate the stack. Um, (laughs) Right. How have you seen that sort of thing handled across different functional programming languages? Well, I mean, the the most common approach is you're you're just creating a new instance. And so then then it's a matter of like, well, does the syntax make it easy if I have this nested data structure and I'm just changing one value in it? You don't want to have to like redefine maybe 30 different nodes in a tree, you just want to change this particular node. And so so Elm and other languages have syntax that almost look like maybe you are mutating, but under the hood, it's it's not. It's creating a new instance and returning it so with just the, the change you wanted. I haven't actually looked into how it would be done in Elixir, but I, my guess is that if you were to try and implement like a stack in Elixir, you would do something where, you know, calling, you know, or passing a stack into like a pop function or whatever would return like a tuple, I guess, or something of the item that was popped off and the new stack. Is mm-hmm. that is that the yeah. sort of thing that, you know, yeah. ends up being pretty common? And I guess that sort of thing is like not, if you don't have like uh, pattern matching, then these sorts of things start to get really <laughs> ugly too, I guess, right? Well, yeah, it's ugly. And this this is one of those areas where I think you actually might do yourself a disservice in trying to emulate this behavior in a language where it's not a core feature of the language because now you're dealing with performance issues too. You know, So a language that has immutability baked in, number one, it's actually going to leverage 
the fact that stuff is immutable to, to make your program faster and to give you better errors and things like that. And the runtime is built with that whole assumption baked in. Whereas if you just pull a library or something into JavaScript or into PHP that gives you immutability, like the, the underlying language really isn't optimized for that. And you, you get some of the benefits, but you don't really get all of the benefits. And, and there are some trade-offs yeah, as well. So one thing I think is maybe an interesting thing to talk about at least a little bit is um, PHP is kind of an interesting language in the sense that uh, when you're serving a PHP application, every request is kind of like a, a independent thing, right? So you don't really have to worry about like shared memory between like two mm -hmm. PHP requests or anything. And as if you're someone who's only ever written PHP, you kind of take that for, for granted in a lot of ways because you're actually kind of getting like some immutable type benefits, right? Sure, Compared to sure. a language like Ruby, if you're hosting a Rails application, you have to constantly be worrying about not really constantly be worrying about it, but like things like multi-threading and stuff become harder because then you have to start worrying about uh, is this stuff thread safe? Am I sharing memory mm. because it's a long-lived process? Um, and yep. one of the biggest benefits of using like languages like Elixir is is that it's really good for concurrency because of the immutability because every time you spin up a new process, it's completely new stuff and you never have to worry about it corrupting the place where it came from or, or anything like right. that. Do you have any interesting like opinions or anything regarding the kind of idea of immutability being better for concurrency or any stories or anything that you think were interesting to share there? Um, some anecdotes maybe, because you know, I haven't, like I said, I haven't done a whole lot of Elixir yet, but just, just learning it and looking at it in Erlang, I think immutability is one aspect of that, but the other is the focus on um, message passing and like small processes that talk to each other. And that's that's something that you could emulate, in, I think, in any language. But you just get some really powerful tools to help manage that in in Erlang and Elixir. Um, but you know, for example, I think um, I think it was Phoenix, which is a, a web framework built on top of Elixir. There was this really cool um, benchmarking case study where they were they were using WebSockets and showing like how many concurrent connections could they get going on a single machine. I think it got up over a million, like yeah. just on a single Rackspace server. Um, and so like that is, is super interesting to me. I don't have a use case for it. Um, but just like the fact that the language and the runtime doesn't crumble under that or that you don't have to have a computer science degree to implement that is, is really cool. And even at small scale, um, you know, even if you only have a few hundred concurrent users doing something or interacting with a, a dashboard or a data set, um, you still get all the power of that, even if you don't need all the scale that's available to you. Yeah, that's very cool. I think, um, from my understanding, like WhatsApp runs on Erlang, right? And mm -hmm. uh, yeah. they have, you know, whatever billion users and <laughs> right. a fairly small engineering team, I think, from my understanding, too. Yeah, yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah, uh, it's very battle hardened, too. I mean, Erlang is, I think, goes back to the 70s and it's been used. For, all for a lot telecom of telecom systems kind of, and right, yeah. So it's like I can now get all of that that cool stability and error recovery and um, communication protocols just for my stupid little you know app that maybe is managing scores at a trivial league or something something way 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 scaled down from that. But it, it's still useful even in that small context. Yeah, it's pretty cool stuff. That's uh, it's really interesting to be able to have a language like Elixir that you know, gives us all the kind of modern, nice 
user-friendly syntax that people look for in languages, but lets you leverage the power of these like really battle-tested, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. systems that are you know have a lot of evidence for being like a great choice for things that need to scale with lots of like concurrent uh, users and stuff. So yeah. it's pretty cool to like be able to have the opportunity to leverage that now versus before trying to use something like Erlang directly would sound like a super intimidating uh, sort of thing to get into. Yeah, I, I think especially just the syntax. It looks very different from a lot of other, you know, what you think of like C-style languages. Um, but, but Elixir softens that a little bit without, without diluting the, the strength of it at all. Is there any other things that you wanted to get into or any uh, other stuff related to functional programming that you think is interesting or exciting like that you'd like to uh, share before we start wrapping things up? Yeah, just just one quick note. I would uh, I would encourage people to give functional programming languages and and languages in general a try, even if you don't see like maybe you work at a large organization and it's a .NET shop and that's all you're all you're ever going to use at work. I think there's still a lot of value in taking a weekend or even a month of weekends and digging in and and learning something else. And, you know, obviously circumstances vary, so not everybody has ample free time. They might have family obligations or, or other things going on. But there's, I think there's a, there's a large class of programmers that maybe look at something like Elixir or Elm or, you know, other languages and just be like, yeah, that's interesting, but I don't know how, it, how or when I'd ever use that. And there's just so much value in even spending 10 to 20 hours learning something and maybe never touching it again but now you've gained some knowledge and some context and, and, and maybe even a different way of thinking about, about the programming you do at work. So that's, that's just my, my plug for continual learning and uh, not, not always looking at return on investment as like a business person might, but just like program for fun and see what's out there and, and try different things out. Right on, yeah. I fully, fully agree with that. Like I've learned so many things that I never expected to learn going into something that have proven to be super useful uh, in my day to day. And even the stuff that hasn't been useful has just given me, you know, the ability to participate in conversations or talk to people about things that, you know, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to talk to people about before. So it's always fun to be kind of expanding <laughs> your mind and learning new stuff. Well, and I'd throw one other angle on that too. If, if, um, so learning on your own is one thing, but let's, you know, a lot of, a lot of programmers attend conferences or go to meetups and I would say, you know, go outside your comfort zone, like go to a functional programming conference or go to, if you have a local Erlang or Elixir meetup, just, just like check it out. Um, and again, you know, there's, there's costs and potential time off work and things involved that may not be practical for everybody, but even attending a conference like uh, there's Code Mash and there's Strange Loop and there's conferences that have a wider appeal, um, like, like maybe an hour or two from my house, there's one called That Conference. And a lot of it's .NET, but they have like 10 tracks. And so there'll be, there'll be talks on, on F-sharp or Elixir or um, Haskell or other things. Like just go to one session of those talks and just, even if you know nothing about the topic, just get exposed to it and see like what excites other people about it. And if it looks interesting, then, then take it a next step. But 
I know as programmers, we like to stay within our bubble a lot, and we go we go places we're comfortable, and we think is is going to be like totally relevant for us. But I, I think it's really useful to stretch a little bit and, and and see what other people are doing and learn from that. Right on. Um, if you wanted to recommend like one thing for someone to start with, if they wanted to start getting into functional programming, uh, where would you point someone? I, I guess right now I'd have to strongly recommend Elm because I think a lot of people like doing stuff on the web um, and really all you need to, to work with Elm is a browser and a text editor and the docs in the community are so good I think it's worth giving it a try it's I think you're certainly gonna have a better time than if you dive into Haskell sure. so little secret Elm is actually written in Haskell oh wow <laughs> um, so so and a lot of the syntax is very similar but it's just the approach of it um, so that's that would be one resource and if I had to give a second one it would be uh, there's a there's a book I've been working through. The website is haskellbook.com, and their their whole the, the two authors their their whole approach is like learning Haskell doesn't have to be hard. It has sort of this scary um, experience a lot of people come away with, and so the way they approach it is just amazing. I'm like six chapters in. And there's things that are clicking that I've thought I understood before that I really actually do understand now. So it's a big book. It's like 1,200 pages, and I think it's like 50 bucks. But it's you know if you're serious about it, I, I would highly, highly recommend that. But you know if you're less serious, then definitely give the the Elm guide a try and, and play around with that. Awesome, man. Well, um, what are kind of the best places for people to kind of keep up with what you're doing or or find out about new stuff that you're working on or just kind of see, you know, interesting things that you're sharing or talking about? Yeah, I would probably say Twitter. Um, so my Twitter handle is jclermont, spelled the French way, C-L-E-R-M-O-N-T. Uh, I have a blog that's kind of meh, <laughs> com. I don't do it a ton there, but but definitely Twitter. I'm, I'm constantly... Uh, posting articles or re- retweeting, you know, conference videos that went online that I found thought were really amazing. Um, so I'm always I'm always encouraging exploration of of different and unique things within the programming language community. Awesome, man. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on, and I'm looking forward to uh, checking out Elm. Great. So for anyone who's interested in show notes for this episode, they'll be available at fullstackradio.com/slash forty four. If you can rate and review the show on iTunes, that's awesome. Helps uh, more people find out about the podcast. And uh, thanks, as always, to Laracast and Rollbar for sponsoring the podcast. Thanks, everyone. See you next time.